Well, that brings us to chapter 44, verse 6. Now he's going to talk about more detailed why idols are so absurd. Why they're so absurd. Verse 6. This is what Yahweh, Israel's king, says. Their protector. Yahweh who commands armies. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. I think I've mentioned this before, but I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, which is mentioned in Revelation. I am the first and the last, or also I am the beginning and the end. Those are all synonymous with each other. It's not just I am the first and I'm at the end. That's what's called a mirrorism, where you refer to two things and also includes everything in between. He's saying I am the first and the last and everything in between. I am at the very beginning of all time. I am at the very end of all time. And I am with you between those two points throughout all of human history. The equivalent of that would be when he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So that's basically what he's saying here is rather than saying past, present, and future, he's using past and future as a mirrorism for the present as well. All points of this. So it's all points of human time is what he is. He's always present. And that's significant because remember there was a time that the gods did not exist. And there's many times that the gods are not there with you. And they're off somewhere else. And there's a time that the gods will not exist. And so what God is making the point as he's going to go into this absurdity of idols rant is that unlike them, I have always been there from the very beginning. I will always be there in the very end. And I have never left you at any point throughout human history, unlike the gods. And I am your protector. Who is like me? Let him make his claim. Let him announce it and explain to me. Since I established an ancient people, let them announce future events. Anybody can step up and challenge me. Who is like me? Anybody, step up and just present yourselves. But one of the first things you have to do is you have to be able to predict things long, far into the future and for them to come true. I established an ancient people and let them announce future events. Let them announce future events. Let them predict the future and always be right like I am. That's one thing that makes me absolutely unique and different than them. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Did I not tell you beforehand and decree it? You are my witness. Is there any God but me? There's no other sheltering rock. I know of none. Now remember the word rock here is a mountain. A mountain like Mount Sinai that you can... And remember the rock takes different ideas. All throughout the Bible, the rock is used as a place that God lives on, high above everybody else. The rock is something that you can hide in a cave, and the cave will protect you from storms, so you can hide in God. The rock is something that you can build your house on, and it's completely unmovable and will not be shaken in the storms. And the rock is the rock that provides water and life for you. And a rock is also where you hide from your enemies. And so the rock takes different ideas of both offense and defense and provision of life for you. And God is saying, I am that rock. Verse 9, all who form idols are nothing. The things in which they they delight are worthless. Their witness cannot see. They recognize nothing, so they are put to shame. Who forms a god and casts an idol that will prove worthless? Look at all his associates will be put to shame. The craftsmen are mere humans. 
Let them all assemble and take their stand. They will panic and be put to shame. Okay, first thing that we know about about idols. No one can be compared to me. No one is like me. You humans are all like grass. You grow up and you burn up in the heat and then you die away like that. And your hands are the ones who are creating the bodies for gods. Right now, your idols are automatically pathetic by the fact that you humans created the physical bodies for the gods. That's pathetic. A blacksmith works with his tools and forges metal over the coals. He forms it with hammers. He makes it with a strong arm. He gets hungry and loses energy. He drinks no water and gets he drinks no water and gets tired. So the man who's creating it is is weak. He gets tired and exhausted. He needs tools to help him create the body of the gods. This is pathetic. A carpenter takes measurements. He marks out an outline in his form. He scrapes it with chisels and marks it out with compasses. He patterns it after the human form, like a well-built human being, and puts it in a shrine. Not only that, the design and blueprint that you're using to form the body of a god is my blueprint for the human body. You form it in your own image. But when I formed you, I thought of the human body out of nothing. Nobody gave me that idea. Nobody gave me that blueprint. But you're creating the body of a God and you have to plagiarize me. And then you put in a shrine and you act like it's this amazing thing. Look at my amazing work. Okay? It's like when we have kids who plagiarize papers and are like, I did a really good job. And it's like, you forgot to change the blue color of the links under the things when you copied it from Wikipedia. That's what God is saying. Like you literally copied and pasted the image of your own body that I created, and you put your God in it, and then you put it in a shrine and said, this is awesome. This is awesome. That's what idols are. They're plagiarized, pathetic copies of what I've done. He cuts down cedars and acquires a cypress or an oak. He gets trees from the forest. He plants a cedar, and rain makes it grow. Knowing that... The tree that you planted that you're going to make the idol from it, the only reason it was able to grow is because I made the seed and I sent the rain. Without those two things, because you can't create seeds and you can't make rain, you would not even have the wood to make the human body or the wooden body for your God. A man uses it to make a fire. He takes some of it and warms himself. Yes, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. And then he makes a God and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Now, that's really jacked up. Because I didn't create human bodies and then put my spirit in some of them and use the other human bodies to make fires and warm myself with them. Now you're like, well, that's kind of sadistic and twisted. But that's the point that God is making. That's the point that God is making. This entire time, he's using this word formed. Formed. You formed it with your tools. You formed it with your hammer. You form it. That word is the word yasar. And the Hebrew word yasar has the idea of getting your hands on it and forming and building with your own hands. That is the exact word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 when God yesard Adam and Eve. He got his hands in the dirt and formed them. And so, that's why I've been saying what I've been saying, is that God is literally making a comparison to the fact that I created the human body, and I breathed my spirit into you. And now you are creating God bodies for your gods. 
and hoping their spirits enter into them. And this is pathetic. Because remember, that's what they they envisioned. They did not literally believe that the idol was a god. They believed that they were creating human bodies or containers or vessels for the spirits to enter into. And so God is not saying that the gods are not real. He's not saying that you can build a god out of the wood and with the other part of the wood you're making a fire. That's dumb. He's saying that you're building bodies, vessels, containers for the gods. And that's pathetic. Because the container that you're building is a plagiarism from my idea. The container that you're building, you have to use tools and hammers and somebody else's blueprint. The container you're building comes from a tree that I provide the seed. I provided the rain to grow it. And then you act like it's unique and different. And then your God enters that container and vessel, and he's limited by it, and you have to carry him around and put him in different parts of the villages, because if you don't, he won't be able to protect that part of the village. It's like if we don't have a security camera there, there, and there, we're not safe. And we don't have an alarm system there, there, and there. We're not safe. And we're trusting in all these things. And they do work to a certain point. But they're limited by where we place them. And that's the way they viewed it. The gods were limited. And so you build vessels for them. And they come in and they can protect you. And God's saying, I cannot be contained. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. And this is what he's pointing out. He's not saying the gods are not real. He's pointing out the fact that the gods are pathetic. And that the vessels you created for them are pathetic. And the vessels that you created for them are limited. But he is, has no limit. He is uncontainable. There's nothing you can compare him to. And every idea that you had for these vessels, you got it from him. So there's nothing original to what you are doing. It's kind of like when we brag. And we're like, look at this amazing thing I did. But who gave you the skill to do that? Who gave you the mind to be able to fashion? Who gave you the body and the energy to be able to do that kind of stuff? And I'm not saying you can't be pleased and enjoy the things you created. But there's a difference between that and the pride of look how awesome I am. That lots of people have. And God's saying, the only reason you can do that is because I gave you the ability. Verse 17, with the rest of it, he makes a god as his idol. He bows down to and worships it. He prays to it, saying, Rescue me, for you are my God. They do not comprehend or understand, for their eyes are blind and cannot see. Their minds do not discern. No one thinks to himself, nor do they comprehend or understand, say to themselves, I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I baked bread over the coals. I roasted meat on it and ate it. And with the rest of it, should I make a disgusting idol? Should I bow down to the dry wood? He feeds on ashes. He's deceived, his mind misleads him. He cannot rescue himself, nor does he say, Is this not a false god I hold in my hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, O Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you to be my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I remove guilt from your rebellious deeds as if they were a cloud. The guilt of your sins as if they were a cloud. Come back to me, for I protect you. Shout for joy, O sky, for Yahweh intervenes. Shout out. You subterranean regions of the earth, O mountains, give a joyful shout. You too, O forests, and all the trees, for all of Yahweh protects Jacob. He reveals his splendor through Israel. Now this is powerful, because the only reason that you reason and argue with people is to try to convince them of something. 
Why would you reason with Israel and try to convince them that their gods and their idols are pathetic if you did not want them to replace them with you? This is not a God who is judging them and condemning them and rebuking them and then abandoning them. This is a God who is patiently reasoning with them so that they'll come back to him. They'll come back to him. Verse 24. Now we talk about Cyrus. Now remember, Cyrus, we haven't talked about him officially because it's yet to come in the book of um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and Daniel. But Cyrus II was a half-Mede, half-Persian king who rose up in the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is across the Zagros Mountains, just north of the Tigris and Mesopotamia, Tigris and Euphrates River. And he, he basically built an empire, and he, in 539, he basically conquered the Babylonians, but unlike the previous empires who had conquered and then deported everybody, Cyrus II gave an edict that all people from all conquered nations that were in exile could return back to their original lands. And so he allowed them to go back to original lands. And this led to the waves of return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah back to Judah, which the books of Ezra and Nehemiah cover. And so... Cyrus is not born yet when God is speaking in this passage of Isaiah. And he's, he's predicting him by name in the future. And the only other person that he has specifically predicted by name was Josiah back in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, coming and destroying the religion of Jeroboam. Verse 24, this is what Yahweh your protector says, the one who formed you in the womb. I am Yahweh who made everything. So God is also using this word form. And he's saying, I formed you, and I formed you in the womb. I am the one who made everything, who alone stretched out the sky, who fashioned the earth all by myself, who frustrates the omens of empty talkers and humiliates the omen readers, who overturns the counsel of wise men and makes their advice seem foolish. I didn't just form human vessels. I also formed the entire universe. And I don't just speak wise words. I frustrate the advice of foolish people who fulfills the oracles of his prophetic servants and brings to pass the announcements of his messengers who says about Jerusalem she will be inhabited about the towns of Judah they will be rebuilt her ruins I will raise up who says the deep sea be dry and I will dry up your sea currents who commissions Cyrus the one I appointed as a shepherd to carry out my wishes and decree concerning Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And concerning the temple, it will be reconstructed. So I am predicting the coming of Cyrus. Chapter 45, verse 1. This is what Yahweh says to the chosen one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I hold, in order to subdue nations before him and disarm kings, to open doors before him so gates remain unclosed. I will go before you and level mountains, bronze doors I will shatter. Iron bars I will hack through. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stashed away in secret places, so you may recognize that I am Yahweh, the one who calls you by name, the God of Israel. I'm going to smash open all the impossible barriers for you to return back to the land. And I'm going to do this through one of the most pagan kings ever. Now Cyrus in some ways was a good king. Because Cyrus actually allowed everybody to return back to their own lands. He allowed them to self-govern themselves as nations. He actually abolished 
all slavery and the entire empire, which no kingdom has ever done. And the Greeks brought slavery back. And he gave freedom of religion to everybody. But he still was a horrible, pagan, vicious, cruel king who brought peace under the boot of his superiority and dominion. And he did not talk. I mean, he crushed people. He killed people by the thousands, that kind of stuff. So yes, he gave a lot of freedoms, but after he first crushed everybody who was like, I don't know if I like you. Okay, So basically what God is saying is, not only am I going to bring you back home, but I'm going to do this with one of the most pagan, vicious, immoral, wicked kings that there is. Because I can do anything. I took you in exile with two of the most vicious, wicked, cruel, oppressive, evil empires. And now I'm going to bring you out of exile with the cruel, vicious, wicked, evil empires. Because I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. Verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel, my chosen one, I call you by name and give you a title of respect, even though you do not recognize me. I am Yahweh. I have no peer. There is no God but me. I arm you for battle even though you do not recognize me. I do this so people will recognize from the east to the west that there is no God but me. I am Yahweh. I have no peer. Now this is the amazing part. I am going to do this for you even though you haven't repented and started worshiping me. This is the equivalent of Romans saying for all is sin and why we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You, you haven't even repented. You haven't even turned to me. And yet, I'm going to do this for you so that you will see that there's nothing that compares to me and that I am the true God. I am the one who forms light and creates darkness, the one who brings about peace and creates calamity. I am Yahweh who accomplishes all these things. O sky, rain down from above. Let the clouds send down showers of deliverance. Let the earth absorb it so salvation may grow and deliverance may sprout up along with it. I, Yahweh, create it. Everything is in my power. Everything is my control. Why are you trusting in other things? Because you have to understand, this is what God is saying, is it does not matter if nations in the world acknowledge me or not. I will use them all to fulfill my purposes and to fulfill my word. And no matter how much you don't like Hillary or Trump, or any other leader that we might have, or any other government that you have. And it doesn't matter what you feel about them. It doesn't matter what you feel about the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party. God is using them all to fulfill his greater purposes. And they don't even have to acknowledge him. He will not be hindered, and nothing can stop the word of God. And if he can do that with jacked up, absolute, powerful, dominion, wicked emperors, then he can do that with American presidents and American parties. That's the point. That's the point. So God goes on, and he gives warning to those who will abandon him, but he gives hope to those who will follow him. And he keeps making these points, like, why are you trusting in other people? Trust in me. And he keeps going back and forth and back and forth. And then he talks about that ultimately Babylon is going to fall. And Babylon will fall. And when that happens, he will return them from their exile. And that's exactly what happens. The same year that Cyrus conquered and destroyed Babylon is the exact same year that he told them to all return. And so he directly links the fall of Babylon to the return of the exiles. 
So now we come to chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. And this is the next servant song. The next servant song. So this is verses 1 through 13 of chapter 49. Listen to me, you coastlands. Pay attention, you people who live afar away. Yahweh summoned me from birth. He commissioned me when my mother brought me into the world. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hid me in the hollow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. Now, basically it says, from the very moment that I was conceived, God has called me to do his will. I am his servant. This isn't a calling that I got later in life, like most of the prophets. This isn't a calling that I got later in life, like most of the kings, all the kings. I was called from birth. And he has hidden me away as his secret weapon. He has protected me in the palm of his hand. But I am also a weapon. I am a dangerous weapon that will be used against those who oppose him. Verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant Israel, through whom I will reveal my splendor. But I thought I have worked in vain. I have expended my energy for absolutely nothing. But Yahweh will vindicate me. My God will reward me. We haven't ever gotten the words of this servant either. Okay, All the time we're just told about a king will rule. A king will do this. A king will do that. But this is also the first time that not only do we see um, struggling and persecution among the servant, but we also hear the servant speaking. And the servant says, I feel like giving up. I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. God has called me. I know I'm his special weapon. I know he'll protect me. But now that I'm being used as a sword and a spear and his arrow, I am, feel like I'm accomplishing nothing. I'm working in vain. Nothing is coming out. But Yahweh will vindicate me. So it's the Davidic ruler. Now, obviously, we see that in Jesus. Because Jesus basically praying, like, how much longer must I put up with you wicked people? Like, nothing I say is making a difference whatsoever. We see that at different times in ministry. At the very end of his life, he's like, I don't want to die. I don't don't want to go to the cross and all that kind of stuff. And then Peter tells us that God vindicated him through his resurrection. He vindicated him through his resurrection, and now he sits on the right hand of God Almighty in heaven. And so this is the Messiah. This is the servant. Verse 5. So now Yahweh says, The one who formed me from birth to be a servant, he did this to restore Jacob to himself that Israel might be gathered to him, and I will be honored in Yahweh's sight, for my God is my source of strength. Now notice that word Yassar again. This God who formed me. Not only did he form Adam and Eve with his own hands, with an original design of the human body, and then breathe life into it, but he's now formed me, and I will go out and I will do his will, and he will vindicate me. Meanwhile, you're forming wooden, stationary things to contain the spirit of your gods. And they couldn't protect you when the exile came. And they can't deliver you from your exile. This is pathetic. You want to see God form again? God is going to form again. He's going to form the suffering servant. And that servant is going to be way cooler than any of your idols. Way cooler than any of your idols. He says, Is it too insignificant of a task for you to be my servant? to reestablish the tribes of Jacob and restore the remnant of Israel. I will make you like a light to the nations so that you can bring my deliverance to the remote regions of the earth. This is what Yahweh, the protector of Israel, their holy one, says. To the one who dispersed and rejected by, to the one who is dis- 
despised and rejected by the nations, a servant of rulers. Kings will see and rise in respect. Princes will bow down because of the faithful Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. So you, Israel, are now despised and rejected and beaten down on the ground. But when I send my servant, the nations will rise and respect him. And he will bring you out of the dust and the ashes. This is what Yahweh says. At that time I decide to show my favor. I will respond to you. In the day of deliverance I will help you. I will protect you and make you a covenant mediator for my people to rebuild the land. There's that idea of him being a covenant mediator again. To resign to desolate property. You will say to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in dark dungeons, emerge. And they will gaze beside the roads and on all the slopes they will find pasture. And they will not be hungry or thirsty. The sun's oppressive heat will not beat down on them. For the one who has compassion on them will guide them. He will lead them to the springs of water. I will make all my mountains into a road. I will construct my roadways. Look, they come from far away. Look, they come from north and west and others from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O sky. Rejoice, O earth. Let the mountains give a joyful shout. For Yahweh consoles his people and shows compassion to the oppressed. This is the same language he used that I'm going to destroy you and take you into exile. I am God. And now he's using the language I'm going to bring you back on highways. They're flat with no obstacles. I am God. He promises to do both. He promises to do both. Now, notice he's going to let prisoners go free. He's going to make the blind see. This is why Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, Do you not know me? How do you know the prophets? How do you read the prophets? And how do you not see what I'm doing? Okay, even when John the Baptizer was like, Jesus, I gave my entire life to serving you and announcing your coming. I talked about how awesome you're going to be. I talked about how you're going to fulfill all the prophets. And you're supposed to be kicking Roman butt and delivering and freeing us all. And you're just out there like living as a pauper, just doing a few things here and there, and Rome is still, and I'm about ready to lose my head, and I'm in prison. Are you, was I wrong? And Jesus just responds and says, you know the prophets. And he quotes these passages and says, I, I'm, I'm making the blind to see. I'm setting captives free. Now you're like, well, what people did he let out of prison? Those who were demon-possessed. I'm healing people. Has anybody else done any of those things in all of Israelite history or even human history? And the answer to John is no. But that's why Jesus then turns around and says, oh, but before you think John the Baptist is pathetic and you think, oh, stupid man, why should we have followed and listened to him? Then Jesus then lifts him up as a great prophet, the greatest prophet. So he's not, re- he's not smashing him. He's not making fun of him. He's not tearing him down or mocking him. He's just saying, dear John, I love you so much. And you've been so awesome and you've served me so well. But listen to what you've said and look at what I'm doing and make the connections. Make the connections. When Jesus didn't operate like they thought, it was they, they forget the things that he was doing. Okay? If we don't see people doing the complete picture of what they think we should do, we often forget all the good things that they do. You can do this in relationships. When people fail you, because they will, and they're messing up and they're making you frustrated, it's easy to think that they never do anything good 
or they are never a positive thing in your life. Okay, and that's what happens. When we, we get easily depressed and our slate and our mind gets easily wiped out like nothing good is happening. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I may not be doing everything you think I should, but I'm still doing way more than anybody else has ever done, John. Way more. So that's that servant song of basically I'm going to call my servant up and he's going to guide and protect everybody. 